standing, and if you would turn in your Bibles, grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, where we'll be reading very familiar verses, verses 8 through 14. And it's found on page 1018 of the Pew Bible, page 1018. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do thank you for this joyous announcement of peace and glory. We pray now that as we turn our thoughts to, uh, to it, you would give us wisdom, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that we might understand the true meaning of Christmas and we might celebrate it aright, both in our hearts and in our homes. We pray, work in us to that end, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is always a pleasure to preach on this passage at Christmas time. I've had the opportunity to do this a couple of times, and it's not gotten old for me, and I hope it will not grow tiresome for you. After all, as Charlie Brown once learned from his friend Linus, the heart of the Christmas story is in these verses in Luke 2, 8 through 14. In fact, the heart of the whole gospel is found in this scene, and it's one of the most spectacular moments in all of Scripture. In this passage, Luke describes nothing less than an invasion of heaven into our realm. We might say that what is recorded here is a sort of heavenly Normandy. Such an invasion had never before occurred and it will never happen again until Jesus returns with all his angels. This moment that we're looking at this morning, this moment is more. It is more than the other angel visitations we've been studying together this Advent season. In each of those passages, we've watched as one angel, Gabriel, appeared to a single individual, Zechariah, then Mary, then Joseph. And then he informs them individually of their role in God's upcoming plan. Now, as remarkable as those appearances are, this last appearance is something far greater. What occurs here is not a private audience, a private visitation. 
It begins that way, of course. At first, it's a single angel, probably Gabriel, informing the shepherds of their role in Christ's incarnation. As with Mary and Joseph, the shepherds are given a message, they're given a sign to confirm that message. But then, instead of disappearing, heaven uncovers itself to the earth. It's as if heaven could no longer hold its breath, and there's a temporary rending of the veil between earth and heaven in verse 13. Luke says in that verse, suddenly there was with the single angel, probably Gabriel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Today, this morning, we await a final unveiling at Christ's second advent, his second coming, his return this scene will unfold once more. But this time, the veil will be torn from top to bottom, and heaven will unite with earth, and so we will be forever with the Lord. With that longing in our hearts, moments like this are especially sweet. As I ponder this moment with you this morning, I continue to believe that there are three notes here that we must hit if we are to do justice to this remarkable text. Because it's so rich, there is much that can be said, but I don't think we can do any less than underline once again three notes. The notes of glory, of grace, and of joy that we find in this scene. So together, let's just for a few moments linger on each of these notes so that we might learn to love Christmas as it really was and as it still is within the living faith of Christ's church. Well, the first note, the first note is the note of glory. As in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The word glory means something like our word splendor. In Hebrew, uh, the word actually means something like heaviness. Something or someone who is weighty, is impressive, is splendid. In the Bible, glory, though especially, is what people witness when God draws near. At Mount Sinai, Moses speaks repeatedly of God's glory to God's people revealed. So in Exodus 24, just to give one example, we read this. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Jesus' transfiguration is another moment of glory. In Luke chapter 9, we hear Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. 
The Apostle John begins his gospel by describing Jesus as the fullest revelation of God's splendor, his glory. He writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul, lastly, will later describe his conversion on the road to Damascus as a coming upon him of God's glory that temporarily blinded him. And so not surprisingly in his letters, he goes on to address God as the father of all glory. And he even describes hell as a place where you are away, away from the splendor or the glory of God. And he tells believers like you and I that one day we will have a heavenly body, what he calls a glory body, and that we will inherit these things at Christ's return. So glory is the joyful, the powerful splendor of God, which fills heaven and thankfully spills over onto the earth. Our eyes are used to seeing just a little of this light. We see a little of it in nature. We see a little of it in one another as believers. And of course, we see much of it in the word of God. But we don't live, we don't live in the high beams of God's glory. Those who do go there for a moment, like Moses or John in the book of Revelation, those men had to be adjusted, changed to even cope with such splendor. We are a lot like the Irish boy that the novelist Niall Williams describes, who having taken his first airplane ride, rises above the clouds of Ireland for the first time and comes to realize just how bright and blue the sky can be. Accustomed to the rain, he cannot imagine life with the brightness turned all the way up. So also our natural eyes cannot adjust to the glory of God in heaven, which is why the shepherds were so afraid, as were Mary and Joseph. Now what I'm saying is that Christmas, Christmas for the believer, retains something of this original glow. It's a weighty time, a glorious time, that has to be believed, yes, of course, but must also be felt like something that feels heavy on us, but then also turns out to be wonderfully warm. As Christians, we are to invite this into our lives, to ask God to give us a renewed sense of his Christmas glory, as it was known to Joseph, as it was known to Mary, and as it was known to the shepherds. So then, in light of this glory note, let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our Lord to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand. The second note of Christmas is the note of grace, grace. Christmas is not just about the glory 
of God come down to us. Rather, God's glory has come down to us in the form of a savior. And this is good news. Christmas is about grace. It's about a lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The shepherds in our text were watching sheep who were destined for the temple sacrifice system later in April. Unfortunately, most people miss these connections. Most people in our culture ignore this second note, the grace note, and then they become bored or even annoyed with Christmas. You see, without this second note of grace, Christmas can become as sappy as a Hallmark Christian Christmas movie. Or it can become a busy time, a stressful time. After all, we can only sing so many songs about breaking up on Christmas or snowmen coming to life before we long for something else, something more substantial than this marshmallow diet of sentimentality. As usual, the way forward and the way to avoid this catastrophe is to really listen to the Bible. The angels will lead us if we'll listen to them. In our text, they remind us that Christmas is quite literally for us. Look at verse 11. They're very clear. For unto you, for your sake, for your sake is born this day in the city of David, what? A savior, a deliverer who is Christ the Lord. And here we are reminded once again that Christmas is not primarily something we do. It is not primarily a spirit that we have to keep up within ourselves, but rather that Christmas is something done for us, that it was a rescue mission from the beginning. So then at its heart, Christmas is not advice for how to reach God or how to achieve world peace by our own efforts. Rather, it is the news of how God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. For unto us a Savior is born. Even the offer of peace that is given in verse 14, often misquoted, properly translated here in the ESV, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, or we might say with those whom have received his grace. Christmas is the birth announcement, not just of a teacher or a prophet or an example, but ultimately of a savior. You may not realize this if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, but that name savior was a name God jealously guarded for himself. You read through the entire Old Testament, all those thousands of years of history, and you see again and again how God's people put their trust in various gods, in material things like chariots and horses, or in political alliances, and God would again and again sweep those things out from under their feet and teach them over and over again that he and he alone is Savior. Maybe the greatest summary of this comes to us in Isaiah 45, when Isaiah, speaking for the Lord, says this, There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. 
Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Savior is one of God's most cherished names in the Old Testament. And that name stands at the very heart of Christmas. It is the birth of the Savior and therefore the grace note must play in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, we can never, in our homes, in our lives, in our hearts, we can never allow the manger to drift away from the shadow of the cross or to contemplate the manger without the cross. In fact, detached from the cross, the manger becomes unintelligible, sentimental at best, a mere gesture to separate them, to remove grace and savior from the manger and peace, even for a moment, is like tearing random chapters out of a novel or removing a harmony from its melody. The melody of Christmas, with its happy and soothing carols, must always be joined with the deep and beautiful harmonies of the cross. The one born is a savior, born to die for our sins. This second note of grace must anchor all our celebrations. The last note, the third note, the climactic note, is the note of true biblical joy. Verse 10 reads, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And then later on, although the word joy is not used, we can feel the joy, the joy of heaven as they shout God's glory, the joy of the shepherds as they discover the infant, their resounding joy, as in verse 17, where they go out, the shepherds, and they made known the saying out of joy, out of delight in God, out of delight in what God has done for them. These poor men become preachers of the good news, of the gospel, of great joy. This whole account rings with joy, doesn't it? And yet, some of us find it incredibly difficult to resonate with this last note. We immediately maybe resonate with the first two notes. We feel the glory. We confess the grace. But we may, if we're being honest, struggle with this last note. I know I do. We hear the angels calling all of God's people to rejoice. But we just don't find joy in ourselves or in our world. The struggle, this struggle, takes different shapes within each one of us. For some of us, joy seems naive, impossible, until we were reunited with the person we love, the one who has gone to be with Christ. We may even feel guilty about any joy, any joy that is without that person. We can't celebrate. They're not here. But maybe death is not the issue for you. Maybe it's the rebellion of a covenant child. Maybe it's a suffocating workplace. Maybe it's a world that's on fire with war and violence and every evil you can possibly imagine. The point is this. Some of us can pull off the glory note. We can pull off the grace note. But we just can't get our voices up 
to the high note of joy. Overwhelmed by the hideous strength of darkness, it seems impossible to enter into real joy. To those who feel that way, this way this morning, let me say first of all that it's not wrong to mourn. The Bible calls us to mourning and you are quite, quite right to weep and free to do so. The Psalms are full of weeping and the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations are devoted really to weeping. So you're right to feel, you are right to feel that we cannot be fully happy as long as the Savior, the bridegroom, is bodily absent from us, and so long as the world remains in its sin and rebellion. Happiness can never last in this environment. Happiness can never last in this environment. But I'm not calling you to happiness today. I'm calling you to joy. Joy is the delight of the believer in what God has done and is doing despite everything else. Happiness floats on the surface. It's good. I, I like happiness. It's there when the sun is shining, when the windows are rolled down and your favorite song is playing. If happiness floats on the air, but joy, I would contend joy is different. Joy pierces heaven and earth. Joy is deep delight in who God is and in who God is for you and for all his people. The shepherds did not gain in terms of happiness from any of this. They did not gain financially from this news. They did not go home to new cars, new homes, a better marriage, or a feast, or even eggnog. Their delight or joy was in something beyond what the world could offer. Happiness is sometimes, sometimes easy on Christmas. When we have gifts, food, and family around us, happiness floats in the air around us. And there's nothing wrong with having a very merry Christmas. However, Christmas is not just a time for light feelings like happiness. It is also a time for piercing joy. When C.S. Lewis wrote his life story, his autobiography, he titled it Surprised by Joy. He had known plenty of pleasure and happiness, and he saw nothing wrong with them. And when they were used properly, he supported those kinds of happiness. But all through his life, even before he was a Christian, he got glimpses of something stronger, and that something he called joy. He hints at it in his autobiography when he says, quote, There is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It's too good to waste on jokes. Joy is the serious business of heaven. What makes quotes like this sizzle, I think, is the fact that the man who wrote them, C.S. Lewis, didn't just write the book on joy, he also wrote the book on grief. When, ironically, his beloved wife died at the age of 45. It cannot be an accident that her name was, and you probably guessed it if you don't know already, her name was Joy. A brilliant Jewish Christian and poet, Lewis had met his match in Joy, only to lose her 
after a relatively short marriage. And yet somehow he found joy again. On her tombstone, he marked his hope that she would be reborn from holy poverty. Quote, on the tombstone he wrote, that having cast off stars, water, air, she might resume them on her Easter day, end quote. This, I think, is the meaning of joy in our text. The angels are not announcing the end of all human wars or cancer or death. They are declaring a joy that can pierce through all those things. Something sharp, something strong, something unbent. And this is my prayer for you. A Merry Christmas, yes, but more than that. I pray that in each of us there will be something stronger, more serious, and yet even more delightful than just happiness. And how do we get there? Only through the song of Christmas. Only by the notes of the angelic gospel. Glory, note one, will prepare us and add weight to what we're doing. Grace, note two, will calm us, encourage us. We can come and worship now without fear. And then, and only then, can the deep note of joy be played inside us. And then and only then can we say, I have truly celebrated Christmas this day. Let me show you what I mean. Like the ghost of Christmas past, take my hand for a moment and come with me to a Christmas long ago. Imagine a hallway with bedrooms on either side. It is Christmas morning. The dim light of early morning is just entering the world. There I am, a boy still dressed in my PJs, my hair a mess, my glasses, the kind of glasses you had in the 80s, at least half the size of my entire head. <laughs> my siblings are with me. We've waited the long, cold night out, and Christmas is finally here. However, at the end of the hallway to our bedrooms, the way is blocked. My father has hung a dark bed sheet from ceiling to floor. Straining to see through it, I can make out the hundreds of Christmas lights, only white lights in my family, that are now coming on. My father, a true master Christmas decorator, has covered the entire interior with lights, ornaments, Bible verses he's made by hand in calligraphy, snow-clad villages, and of course, trains. Lovely, sacred music is playing. And I can see my dad, the most powerful man I've ever known, larger than life, moving among the packages. I can see Christmas dimly through the sheet. And I still stand there at the end of the hallway. I'm standing right there, right now with you. Just the other side of the veil, I can almost hear the Christmas angels. I can almost see my heavenly father dimly moving among the gifts that will one day be mine in the place prepared for me and for you. And if you are a Christian, deep down you know you're standing with me. 
our faces together, pressed against the veil. Advent season has come once again. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day have come once again. And from the other side, pouring into our own world, we hear notes of glory, grace, and joy. But oh, who can take down this veil? Who has the right to open the seal? Who can make every day Christmas? Only a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And at his second advent, he will achieve all this. So may the Holy Spirit, in quiet moments tonight and tomorrow, draw you close to the veil. And may the songs of heaven enter your heart in notes of glory, grace, and joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, even now through the Holy Spirit, we draw near to the temple in heaven where the advent of our Savior, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ongoing ministry are celebrated in unbelievable glory, grace, and joy. We pray that some measure of that would be taken from that temple and poured into the temple of our own hearts, that we might truly keep Christmas. Grant this grace, I pray, for each one here, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.